Welcome to Honest Talk about heartbreak, dating, and relationships. Relationships. The podcast helping you navigate your path to happy ever after with your host, Rob McPhillips. Tonight we're talking about work relationships. Um, and in the breakout rooms, we were talking about who is the craziest colleague you've ever had past present future um and i'm really interested to hear the entries for this who's been who are you nominating this this is going out on facebook bbc and itv for as it's going to be like an advert as nominated by with your your face talking um I just set it up so no one's going to no one's going to speak out as I've known. Um, okay, anyone got any uh, volunteers? Oh, we've got a trophy too. Oh, or did it Errol win that trophy? Well, exactly. <laughs> Is that why uh, you're self-employed? No, nah, it's just from uh, from work actually. Yeah, sorry. Is anyone going first, or should I? Yeah, I you're going first. <laughs> I think we're saving we're saving the big guns for last. Oh, okay. In that so case, they're giving I, you a I full sense of security that you're going to win the trophy again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I better go first and get it over and done with. Uh, as, I, as I'm explaining, so the one of the more interesting characters I had was a a, a very clever guy who had very short fuse with his employees, and they were basically terrified of it. Oh, and all, all the way that he was, and it didn't help that he was the boss as well. Um, and I remember one time he, so that there was a group of us standing, and there was this very important software program that he had written, and he wanted the admin manager to run it. And we had the finance people, the uh, admin people, and the admin manager was nervous that it was going to go wrong because this was buying shares on the market. And so, you know, if it's wrong, we're going to execute the wrong deals. We're going to be buying, you know, could be millions of pounds. And as the owner of the company and the programmer, he said to her, no, no, I should be all right. I think I've tested it okay. So it didn't really give a lot of confidence the way he was talking, but I was saying, just run it. And it's just going, yeah, but if it all goes wrong, and then he started twitching. And when it starts twitching like that, you know that the volcano is about to erupt. And I'm thinking to myself, just run the program because he owns the company and he's telling you to run it. I mean, if it goes wrong, it's only him to blame. So everybody else here is that you, you, you already told him once and he's a very clever guy. So, I mean, it doesn't need to be told twice. So she still said, no, 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 I don't know. So at that moment, he just interrupted him and run the fucking program. <laughs> it's like shouted at the top of his voice. Uh, and it was like this big silence and the other one looking at her thinking, oh my God. So he was that kind of a guy. He didn't come into the office very often, as you can imagine. Probably the most colorful character I work with. It's horrible, those kinds of situations as well, because as a bystander, you never really know what to say to kind of diffuse it. You just have to just let it play out. <laughs> it's really uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, you could, I suppose, say, um, are you sure you got the verb correct in there? I think that was a bit, sentence wasn't quite right. That might. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, he, he, uh, that, that's why he didn't come into the office often. He knew that about himself that he wasn't very good at 
so. Okay, thank yeah, you. Great. So we've we've got the first candidate. Sandra's got. Sandra's gonna. No, I'm going to nominate Jake. I think he's got a good one. <laughs> my, my, mine's not too bad, um, but um, so I, I was working in this uh, this company for about two years. My boss decided to organise like a night out kind of thing. We all go for this night out, um, but I used to ride a motorbike, so left my motorbike in the work uh, car park. Uh, obviously, I didn't want to drive it home. Left all my gear in the office, so I came in on a Sunday uh, to pick all my stuff up, and I didn't realise that my boss was going to be in. Um, so I just just walked past him, said good morning, went to my desk, got all my stuff, you know, uh, started putting it all on, uh, and he just disappeared. And I didn't realise, but he'd thought I was a burglar. This is after I'd worked with him for two years, just didn't recognise me. Um, so he locked himself in a bathroom that he had in his office. He had his own like private toilet in there. So he locked himself in and called the police. And he rang um, another guy that I work with and asked him to come and, you know, check and let him out of the bathroom. Um, I didn't think anything of it, put my gear on, just went home. And I came in on the Monday and all of my managers, like one by one, were coming over to me and like, oh, you're in serious trouble. I don't know if you, you realise what you've caused. And they actually wanted me to apologise to the boss as well uh, after this. But it was just, he, he hadn't recognised me. I just after two years working with him. Um, yeah, I thought I was, I was coming in to rock the place. So it's uh, <laughs> quite, quite an entertaining Monday morning for me. I think. <laughs> and what, what were you apologising for, that, that you Cause I came in, in in different clothes? Because uh, I freaked him out, basically. Um, he, yeah, he panicked. Um, I found out later on that um, he's quite a wealthy guy. Uh, someone had robbed his, his brother's car a couple of weeks before. So he was obviously just a bit paranoid about it. But you think, you know, you've been working with someone for a couple of years. You know what they look like. Yeah. So I uh, refused in the end. But it's just uh, an yeah. interesting company. <laughs> Mm. Okay, thank you. <laughs> that was funny. I think uh, Sandra's uh, Mr. Brown was a was a good one. Uh, <laughs> shake your head. <laughs> I was telling them about a driver that I had at a um, where a place where I work, who was the most resourceful person that I had ever met, because he was a driver. He drove the president and senior officers, etc. And he was illiterate, could not read or write, but he had a driving license. <laughs> he could deliver anything. <laughs> he could pay all the taxes. He knew everybody. He knew all the lawyers in the downtown Kingston. He was just the best. And he was Oh, loving. You know, you you would think that, okay, Mr. Brown, you have really mocked up now. But mistress, Miss B, you know, I was trying my best, you know, and, 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 and you know, you know, you know, I want the best for you, you know, and I never meant any harm, that kind of person. And he's so sincere. And you know that uh, Mr. Brown is just up to mischief. No good. But yeah, but he was, I wouldn't call him crazy, but it was crazy in the sense that nobody knew that he was illiterate. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> he's not supposed to have a license he's not supposed to be on the road he's not supposed to be driving anybody <laughs> much less the president of the national investment bank of the country I mean, 
But guess what? If there's a problem that needed fixing, you call Mr. Brown. <laughs> and he will know where to go and get it fixed for you. So therefore, <laughs> license or no license, Mr. Brown was central to your existence. <laughs> that was the bottom line. I, uh, it reminds me, um, someone where I worked, um, I was going to go to university and um, in the year off, I worked at this place. It was kind of like one of these like commission sales places where they, they it was kind of like an MLM thing. Um, and I remember getting in the car with someone and he just drove like a maniac. Um, and someone told me after that he was an ex-getaway driver. So it was like, <laughs> I go, no, no, you'll be all right with him. He's, he used to be a getaway driver. <laughs> So, yeah, that was quite an experience. <laughs> I can only say one about my dad. My dad used to was a self-employed bricklayer, and he said he worked with a guy uh, who also was a bricklayer, and he was only had one eye and one arm. <laughs> he was bricklayer with one eye and one arm. <laughs> but he was good. Apparently, he was good. <laughs> Two legs, yeah? Not just yeah. Two legs, yeah. Two legs, one eye, one arm. Yeah. Wow. Shows the resourceful, resourcefulness of people. Then, yeah. has everyone watched The Office? No. Yeah. Uh, which one are we talking about, American or um, UK? UK. UK. Yeah, I uh, I've watched a bit of the American one, but can get into it. Just seems right. So you know the characters there. So mm. I remember working with someone who was just like a Gareth. You know, Gareth, like the the assistant to the regional manager, and, they go, and he he's like assistant manager. No, assistant to the regional manager. Um, it's like tell me, tell me, tell me, and then I'll tell them. Um, and there was yeah, someone who was exactly like that, and who would keep kind of power. I mean, you can see people like that, and who would keep. Um, I want, want this job and she used to do like the timetables um, and it was a way of keeping her control and so then people would be nice to her to get what they wanted. She kind of got it by like sucking up to the bosses and going, oh, poor me, I can't. When there was actual work to be done, she wouldn't, it wasn't like capable of doing that. Um, and she like, oh, I'll do the filing, I'll do this. Anything that sort of had the position. <laughs> Which was frustrating because, like, if you're trying to do anything, like, everything's going based on someone's ego. Um, so that's frustrating. I can remember other ones who were just so dramatic. I worked in a school um, and you sign up for the kids. You expect the, the problems from them, but what you don't expect is the staff to be the ones who are, um, like, the drama and the... Yeah, hy um, hypochondria and everything like that it was all about them. Like, hang on, you're working with like vulnerable kids, but it was all about them. I definitely saw bosses who were like David Brent, kind of laughable. I've been thinking a lot about recently, I, I think we talked about it last week, is like Dante's Inferno, the idea that um, the nine layers of hell are the various types of people. So at the deepest level, you've got treachery. At another level, you've got um, violence. You've got um, stealing, lying, cheating, all of those things. And Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, said in his play No Exit, one of the characters says that hell is other people. And it's easy to take that and say that it's the other people that create the hell. But actually, he said that was misunderstood comment. It wasn't that 
other people created the hell. It was that your perception of other people condemned you to the hell. So it's really about how you look at the other people and how you relate to the other people. So I was also looking at what what really are the problems. There's office politics. I've always struggled with that. Um, there's gossip. There's cliques. Um, where people work in silos and there's kind of tribalism between different departments, different groups. And then looking at um, where really do the problems come from? And I think what it is is where people are competing for scarce resources. So it's a bit like a, a in a romantic relationship. To, like you can be dating someone um, and the things that are late will be a problem for you won't be a problem until it's a domestic relationship because how they spend their money doesn't affect you until you're directly like yeah. it's a joint account or you're directly affected by how they spend their money. How they spend their time is, doesn't directly affect you until they're there. Um, the atti people's attitudes on parenting doesn't matter until it's your, ch your child who's being affected. Um, so there's that, the fact that in work, you're, you're there for like for the job, for the progression, for the meaning that it brings for the purpose, all of those things. Um, and you're like tied to the company, to the department, to the people that you work with. And if they're stuck if what they're doing seems to be stopping you from getting what you want, that's where it's really the problem. So it's the fear that affects you. And it's also, for me, um, it was this, like the secondary currencies. So we talked last week about the primary currencies are things that we want, like love, belonging, meaning, freedom, security, uh, all of that connection, all of that kind of thing. Um, and then the secondary currencies are the things that people take as a as a proxy for that, like attention, validation, power. In your experiences, has that been true of, of you? Um, can you think of, of times, problems where you've had with work relationships um, and specific problems that either you resolved or you still aren't sure how you would resolve them? Would it help to have more um, vivid examples, more like real examples? Yes. I, I, I can talk about some of mine. I didn't really work for anyone else properly. I worked like I worked at supermarkets. I worked stuff like that. Um, so, okay. So, so working in supermarkets, um, you know, like you're at college and you work in a supermarket um, weekends or evenings. And it was found very much with supermarket managers, this kind of a um, little bit jumped up um, where it was, um, I'm the boss um, and I'm going to tell you what to do. Um, and it was like a feeling of self-importance for them. I think the, the first time I worked for anyone, I was probably about 20, 25, 26, and I worked in the cinema. So I'd been working for myself for about five years um, and probably longer before that. And yeah, so I came in as a training manager um, at a cinema and I came in and I used to just see, I was just there to learn for about six months. I used to just see like the managers would come in and they'd bark at, so you've got like part-time staff, like teenagers who were there working um, and they would just 
come in and bark at them um, and then go back in the office. Um, and so one of the things I had to do was deal with the, um, so, so like you spent a couple of weeks doing all the stuff. So you do a couple of weeks on the floor, like ushering the behind the concession, the other stuff. Um, and one of the things I saw was like really terrible customer service. Um, when you come from working for yourself and you, you kind of, that's one of the things you focus on. Um, and there it's like, and all it would be, would be if someone went in to complain, they, they would get free tickets. That's it. You just send them free tickets. So there's no real resolution. And that's why their ratings were so bad. For me, I saw that the, the, the customers were being dealt with by like 16, 17, 18 year olds who weren't really interested. Um, and they were being treated like shit by the managers. And, where, and the managers had this kind of implicit deal that they would leave them to get on with it and they could sit in the office. Like the head manager was really young, like 22. She'd come up from being a musher. She'd inherited a bunch of other managers who were about to go off somewhere else. Um, and she was scared of confronting them. Um, and so they were basically biding time and, and running it as they wanted for five or six months. I have something in me that like, that's wrong. You shouldn't treat people like that. And it isn't, it's not effective. It's not working. I wrote what someone called my Jerry Maguire document of everything that was wrong. So then it went to the error manager and I spoke to him and, and then, so I set up a project to, to improve customer, uh, improve employee morale. So it improved customer service. Um, and then, but what that meant was the managers, the other managers hated me um, and I didn't know what I was doing. And so they would set me up. So I would screw up because like they would tell me the wrong thing. So I would do it. Um, and, but obviously the manager wasn't going to do anything. Um, and they were just kind of waiting for these people to go. Um, and what would, yeah, so, so we, we improved. They didn't like that we did this, but actually they said all, all people are going to want is more money. Um, and it wasn't. They just wanted a bit of respect. They wanted to feel heard. They wanted to feel like their grievances, that they weren't just to be left cast aside, basically just treated better. And, oh, yeah, and part of the culture of this company was because they were growing fast at the time was – that they liked people like they liked the training managers to go out and get drunk with each other. And I'm like, I don't like these people. And I was living because I, uh, my gym, I still had my gym going at, at that time. It was in Lowestoft. I I was about to move to Ipswich. So it was Lowestoft. Um, and I used to stay in, this was in London. So I used to stay in London at my parents and they go, Oh, you've got this night off. And I go, it's night out. And I, I'm not working. I, I, I don't want to go. Um, they're going, oh, no, no, look, look really badly. Go, not going. I don't like them. <laughs> I'm not going just to, what, play some game. Um, so, yeah, that didn't go down well. So that was that culture. And I'm thinking of the school, school where it's really, I managed the SEN department. Um, so you've got, um, we dealt with the more difficult or the, the, the children that had difficulties or were difficult. It was like, they would moan about the children, but they were like, just like the children. Um, it was all attention-seeking drama. Um, can't do this, can't do that. Yeah, they, they, um, so, I mean, it, this was like, there was one person who was in there to support kids, like bottom set, 
bottom set, I don't think this was like year nine class. Um, and the teacher set them an essay. Person was in there to support a child, help them with their write their essay, like they couldn't write very well, something like that, couldn't think very well. So it's to help them structure it to write it. But she didn't do that. She wrote her own essay and handed it into the teacher to be marked. Um, this was a teacher that uh, this was a, a TA who who would always go into art so she could do their art for them. Um, um, and then there, there were others of what was most frustrating was it was we were supposed to be there for children, support them, um, help them, but it, it became a battle of staff wanting what they wanted. So I don't know if that any of that triggers anything or you've been in circumstances like that. What I'm getting from some of what you're saying is uh, there are certain basic ways that we come across or we deal with situations. And even though it might be the workplace, in other circumstances, we are bringing those same characteristics or those same ways of being into that in, into that other um, situation. So be it work or relationship or whatever it is, those things, um, yeah, we, in the workplace, we, you may call them quirks, but they have implications for your life across mm -hmm. all, 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 all phases of your life. And um, it's how to recognize those things uh, and when you talk about um, the workplace I can think of um, my first job and it's like being caught in the middle between the staff below you and the staff above you and um, my first job was with a government project and it was USAID funded. So even though it was government, we were project staff and so we were not paid government wages. So that started, that was the first bit of jealousy because <laughs> you're not a public servant, you're not a civil servant, you're project staff. Oh dear, they earn more money than us. Oh. Um, and then... Um, but I was interviewed by an American gentleman, I will not forget him, who was head of the project, coming and his first lecture to me was to let me know what a hard life he had growing up in Arkansas, barefooted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, the redneck belt of America and pulled himself up until, until he earned a PhD. And so he's now doctor, whatever. So he's head of the, of the, um, the, 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 the project. He's the big boss. And so you little girly, you little native girl, you know, pat, pat on the head. Um, and he gives me this long lecture and then he says, oh, yes, okay, fine. We'll employ you kind of thing. Okay. So I was one of the first two females to do this this thing and when we had to do an orientation and go to the fish farm itself and the laborers who are the ones who do the dirty work with the fish and out in the fish ponds and everything and the crocodiles and what have you um he thought that okay these two girls i'm going to see what they're like into the fish pond you go with them and you're going to pull the seine you know the net you're going to be pulling it with them. The men were appalled. It was like, 
Mistress, you mean you nice little girl like you put it in apologize. This is hard work for us. You know, you're not supposed to be here. I said, no, 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 no. We have to show them that we can do this work. So move over. So the, it's, you know, they are going to teach us how to sex fish, which is, it's tilapia. So male and female are different. So you have to learn and we have to count and do all the rest of it. And it's horrible work and the scales are flying and all the rest of it. And you're in the mud. And when you step, because my feet are small, I, there are no Wellington boots to fit me. So I'm barefooted in the fish pond and the fish are in their little nests and I step on them. So I have spines in my foot. I cannot cry because clearly I will be a softie. <laughs> so I'm there and the men are upset. <laughs> so, so the men are upset because we are ladies, the laborers, the meanie. The, the, the meany white men on the banks, um, them foreign people, they see, see them, they don't know, you know, uh, so, so that's the muttering that's going on. I'm saying, no, 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 it's okay. It's fine. This is all part of the training. And it's a kind of grudging kind of thing with that you survive the day. You were out in the hot sun. You are not moaning about the, the mud and all the rest of it and so forth. And there is no bathroom. This is like really in the boondocks now. This is in the bush. All right. And you come out and they're like, oh, tut, tut. Kind of stuff. So on one side, you have the laborers who think you should not be there for this protective reason. And then you have those men trying to show you that you should not be there for another reason. You don't deserve to be there. And so you have to fight your corner by just being, <laughs> just being cussed, if you know what I mean, and just stubborn and just sticking it out. Right. And um, as part of that, it also happened when we went to university in, well, we went to Auburn University in Alabama. That is another long story. But anyhow, and it was the men, you you little girls kind of thing, you know, pat pat on the head. Oh, oh, but OK, you want to be here? Well, then we are going to be hard on you. So therefore, let's see how many catfish and catfish spines have this sort of deadening it's almost like a, it's toxic so each time you get it it hurts it really hurts and you have to go and count catfish fingerlings for graduate students so on an afternoon for a practical you probably count like 500 per person and it's the two of us girls and we are doing that and counting them and getting stuck and and it's you have to be proving yourself and you have to be proving yourself otherwise because you know my professor comes to me and he says to me um baby as he calls me in his alabama accent when you're filling out your forms i suggest to you that you tick other so while at my stay in the united states i was under the category of other because, you know, you have, everybody has to fill a box. You are either black, white, Hispanic, blah, blah, blah. He says, for your own, tick other, <laughs> you know, because then you won't get labeled. You're just other. <laughs> you really don't, you're just whatever. Um, and they'll ignore you. Uh, and so it's it's that kind of thing wherein you find yourself um fighting one set and fighting another set and you're caught between in in, in the middle 
and you wonder, um, do people consciously know that their behavior is impacting um, people? And But on the other side, you also have to develop behavioral patterns to counteract those two, which sometimes kind of feel a little alien to yourself. You know, it's not really the true you, but to survive, you've got to. And in, I, I suppose that maybe quite a few people in the workplace find that they have to do that as well yeah you know so 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 yeah but then um does it then become a part of you i mean i was stubborn from before i was cussed from before so fine it was that was just became worse but um for, for other people who find that it must be stressful that they have to take on these kinds of characteristics to actually um hold on to a job yeah there's and, and especially um I can't remember who, but there's a sociologist who talks about like the service culture, service work. Um, for example, like if you're if you're selling from a call center, it means you being nice to people all day or on customer service. Um, and so, what you're really um, selling is your personality, and you're so you're selling something of yourself. Um, and he was talking about it's selling it like it's kind of selling a little bit of your soul yeah um and going back to even what Karl Marx was talking about about um work has been alienated from the means of production um and so like in the past Marx's argument was that in the past what people produced they enjoyed um and he's saying now that you're being separated from that and there's a um enemy um, like meaninglessness in people's work um which he, he said would would create more problems i think that that's always been my uh, my issue with uh, working in places is that the to, to my mind a company should be set up so that everybody that works there is is being provided for in one way or another, whether it's like money or it's something to go and do or it's people to go and speak to. Like the, the point to, to me of a company is that it, it's there to service a need of the people that are part of that company or who are purchasing something from that company. Sometimes I think the managers, they get so sort of focused on their, um, I don't know, their success in whatever task it is they're trying to do that they forget that when they're putting pressure on you and they're, they're making the team generally unhappy, they're kind of failing as a sort of, I don't know what you'd call it, like they're, they're kind of missing the point of the company being there. Like it's it's there for people. It shouldn't be a system that's just sort of self-sustaining for no reason. Like it's the, the reason we go and we do these jobs is because we want to have something to do and we need to provide for ourselves. Mm. Um, so I always try and see it as I'm going to work just for something to do. Um, you know, the, the job is kind of irrelevant, but it's the interaction I'm having with other people that's actually the important part of the job. Like that's the bit that I get satisfaction from is from collaborating with other people. So when they're kind of kicking off about something that I don't really think is that important, it's easier to not get stressed out about because I'm like, well, that's that's not really, you know, the, the, the focus of of my work here like that that might be what they think is the job but as long as everybody else is kind of you know getting on and, and, and happy that's really more important um 
so I think that's always been my frustration because you know when you have these like I think everybody has these reviews like every six months or every year whatever it is in every job and they always give you like this list of things that you need to improve on and I just kind of always sit there like you're never gonna achieve everything that's on that list because they'll just give you more so surely mm. the only thing that you can do is be happy with the people that you're working with mm. and you know eventually like if you ask for more money they might give you a little bit but eventually it, it's just a matter of time before they give you those things anyway if you're a company for a long time so the, the best you can do is just kind of make it a pleasant place to work that's always yeah. been my my opinion on it but it's yeah uh, yeah and the, the, there's even a politics to like the reviews isn't there it's like when you're doing your review, reviews got to find free thing it, it's i think the problem for a, a lot of cultures and it's really difficult because the more complex the company is the more different stakeholders and the more agendas that are involved um and you've got to be um obviously you have to have profit, profitability um and then it's kind of split between who who you're serving, and then there's so much complexity about personal agendas, professional agendas that um, people are doing. So there's there's global rule sets, so like in reviews and feedback, um, but then as it comes down, people are interpreting them. Okay, we've got to tick this box. We've got to do this. And, and I can remember being in reviews and setting reviews and it's like, okay, well, we need to, we need to hit these and you need to hit these to get your pay rise. Um, and I remember sitting there and going, okay, like I've, I've, like I'm not, I've, I've gone through the courses. Um, there's nothing in this way that I'm really interested in. Um, and especially when you like hit a level and you're like, well, I'm not going to, what's the point? Well, I'm just playing a game. What for? To get a yearly tick. Um, yeah. So, so, so there's, yeah, it's, um, and I think that's, that's the key thing. My, my like when I'm thinking about, for me, the goal is alignment, like my personal goal in working with people. Um, and so, and I think as a company that like, I think as a couple, you're pulled in two different directions ultimately, um, where one person wants one thing and that's the point where relationships break. But in companies, you're split between the leadership, um, the front line, the different departments, um, personal agendas. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's being able to design the company that works all of that out. And the man who may have the answer is Eril. Sorry about that. Um so, okay, my, my point of view, I know we talk about complexities in the workplace, larger it is, and um, I, I audit, well, I, I do auditing as a, as a job, as a profession, uh, but I don't audit accounts. I actually audit the way the business runs. So I audit management, employees, and I have to certify them to various international standards in professional management. That's what I audit. And in my previous life, shall we say, uh, I worked as an employee at the bottom of the food chain, and I worked in a lot number of different roles, middle management through to 
operational board directorship where I had to give presentation to shareholders and stuff like that. Um, so my experience for what it's worth, um, large organizations and small organizations, they're not really that different. The key issue is actually, as Jake kind of alluded to, is management. Um, management is the key problem in most of the organizations that I come across with issues. Um, because, and in some ways they're handicapped, and I felt this handicapped myself in my life. So, um, for example, I always sought feedback from my employees, but they were understandably nervous giving me negative feedback. Because, you know, I might turn around and say, well, how dare you say that I'm a crap manager? Because, you know, as much as I actually wouldn't, they don't know me from Adam in that sense. You know, they don't know me well enough to, to pipe up that courage. I mean, who wants to put their job on the line kind of thing? Um, and the difference in terms of different management styles was starkly obvious to me when one of my project managers asked me to intervene because he couldn't get the project out. It was bouncing between two department managers. And so I got involved. And one of them had been with working with me for four years or something. And she was giving me some answers. And the other one was a new transfer from the admin department to us. And he's been working with us for about a month. And I was getting really odd answers from him when I was asking questions. And, I, and you know, being the guy I am, I kind of, when I don't get an answer that's odd, I don't let it go. I start asking questions from a different angle and a different angle and trying to figure out what's going on. And at one point, his friend rolled his eyes and literally went, for God's sake, he said, just answer the question. And at that point, I understood what he meant. In his department, when something goes wrong, well, in my department anyway, before I go to this one, when something goes wrong, we do exactly what we were doing. We call everybody together and we sort it out and we get it out the door because the project, we have to, you know, the customer is at the other end of the line. So you have to get that out. In his department, where he came from, when there is a problem, first thing they do is they call everybody together and they go on a witch hunt. Who are we going to blame on this one? Right? So that's what he was used to. So whenever I asked him a question, his answer was, okay, so how can I come out smelling of roses out of this one? What can I say? Rather than, okay, we kind of cocked up there, but then this bit is not our fault and whatever. And I'm not really interested in whose fault it is. I'm interested in where is the problem and how do we fix it? I don't got time to look for a problem, you know, to blame somebody. I need this project out the door. Afterwards, when all the nerves are calmed down and we are no longer angry, we can sit down and look to see how we ended up here and what we need to change. But of course, also in my department, if you are having that conversation with you time and again, then we have to talk about career planning because clearly that's not right for you. How did you ever so, 
management is the issue quite often. Um, and even in, and yes, you too end up in places, as Santa pointed out, where um, you are trying to sort something out in your area, but your management above you does not understand or buy into that concept. And so I had a run-in with the CEO because I went on a holiday. So I, I, I set up my team and it took me a number of years to reorganize them uh, so that I could kind of go on holiday, come back and not have issues because they were self-sufficient. Because as a director, my job isn't to get involved in everyday jobs. My job is to strategize. And I came back from a three-week holiday, and the CEO rang me up and said, oh, your team sent out some stuff, and it was wrong, and they didn't test it properly, and this, that, the other, and, you know, you need to, basically, you need to tear them a new one, right? So you need to really tell them off severely. So anyway, I called the team in, and I said, and they all came in sheepishly, so they're obviously expecting and I said, well, you know, what's, what's, going, what's happened? Because I get this call from the CEO, there's nothing on my desk. You know, what's happened? And basically, uh, there was a bug in the software. They hadn't realized. The testing hadn't shown up. Um, so it all went out wrong. Uh, when they realized it, they fixed it. They sent apology letters, and they put systems in place to prevent those kind of issues from happening again, you know, to a certain check. So I'm thinking, okay, under the circumstances, what is it that I need to tell them off? Um, because life is unpredictable and things will always go wrong. We're talking about software development. There is no such thing as a perfect software. There are bugs in every software. They did do everything they're supposed to do, but this was one of those things that they didn't foresee. I mean, if you're going to test everything to death, then we have to test it for about 10 years before we send it out. And that's not going to happen. So. I didn't tell them off. And because I didn't tell them off, um, I got into trouble. And I, and how did he know that I didn't tell them off? Because my office happened to be next to the HR office. And guess who head of HR is? His wife. <laughs> so, so she could see that I didn't tell them off because I wasn't shouting or screaming or anything. And so, you know, ah, oh, you are not doing as your boss instructed you. But the point is, I am not a yes man. You know, you put me there to make decisions. If you don't trust my decision making, then perhaps you need to talk to me and I go and do something else. But if you trust my decision making, which I guess you are, because I've been in there for a number of years, then you have to trust that I'm making the right decision. You can't make it personal. But he did for whatever reason. So management is usually the problem. Even to this day, I ordered some multinational organizations, and I mean, perhaps they got a few thousand employees around the world. And I quite comfortably go and talk to the top management, you know, at the at the very top in the boardroom who make all the decisions. And sometimes I ask them very simple questions, like. Um, why, why, what is customer satisfaction to you? Or you know, why are you doing this? 
and they have no idea. Oh, they give me the sales spiel, of course, because, you know, there is like, so I can see through the sales spiel. I mean, I've been in the boardrooms long enough to know the rubbish. So I can kind of cut through all that and go, yeah, okay, that's great, but what about this? And they can't answer. So quite often, management is a bit like bad workmen blaming their tools. You know, you can't get the employees these days, is the typical one you have. But you can get the employees, it's just that you don't train them. You bring them in, bums on seats, and then you wonder why it doesn't work. Um, there is no understanding. And then they say, oh, but, you, you know, um, we give them and they screw it up. Well, of course they do, because you haven't trained them. I mean, if you take a one-year-old baby who's never walked before, do you stand him up and go, off you go, you're one year old, now you should be able to walk. No, you don't. What do you do? You hold them up. And as they start finding their feet, you kind of hold your hands around. And if they're going to fall, you hold them. And then when they are able to walk, you let them go. Well, business is exactly the same. You bring somebody in, they're going to screw up. So you train them. You are watching them all the time. you got them sitting with somebody. As they start showing that they can do things, you then give them more and more responsibility. But you watch them closely, and after a while, you kind of ease off as they prove themselves to you, and they gain confidence in themselves. And, you know, I told you about that um, reluctant learner, enthusiastic beginner bit as well, Rob, on time. Oh, there's a number of changes that they are, that people go through. So at the beginning, they are the enthusiastic beginner, which means uh, all they need is direction. But they got tons of enthusiasm because they are new to the job. This is the best thing. It's all going to work out fine. And then if you leave them alone, they will shred where angels won't go because they don't know what they're doing. And they will screw it up with all good intentions, though. And of course, they get blamed. And it's actually management fault because they don't know. And so what I find quite often is that management don't know how to grow people, if you like, or how to delegate, or how to put in controls and measures so that they can be aware of what's going on and what the developmental life cycle is like. So they don't manage that relationship very well. And it comes back to understanding human psychology a little bit as well. And realizing that actually nobody wakes up in the morning and comes to work to screw up. Everybody wants to go home a hero. Everybody wants to do well at work. So the question, but I get it. Some people are lazy. Some people would rather not do anything. And so you got to kind of understand those weaknesses. And some of them are just not motivated. Um, and those are the challenges of management to break down those barriers, assuming they can be broken down within time. I mean, I had one guy which I had to, let's just say, remove because he was the nicest guy you could have. He came on time. If I came early, he worked very hard but his error rate was very high. And no matter how much training we gave him, how much support we gave him, and I personally got involved in his sort of training and watching over with his manager, you know, how he was progressing along. The people who were coming into the department months after him were far better than him. 
you know, he will do, let's say, 50% error rate. Somebody who's been in the department for two months will have 5% error rate. And, you know, I had to call him one day and say, look, you come early, you work very hard, I've got absolutely no problems. You get along well with everybody, a real gentleman, but I also need the job done. And at that point, he kind of said that he was finding the work very hard, very stressful, he couldn't, you know, he couldn't do it. So, you know, he was, he, we had to let him go. But I mean, there was no shouting, there was no screaming, there was no disappointment. They don't want to drop them uh, You know, so this was, this was the, I, I guess what I'm saying is that, yes, sometimes employees are not a good fit for the job. But as managers, you have to find out. And first of all, you have to understand, or at least pretend, even if you don't accept it, that you are dealing with adults. And that was always my number one thing. As far as I'm concerned, I'm dealing with adults. If you want to behave like a child, that's your problem. I'm dealing with adults. I'll treat you like an adult. If you continue to behave like a child, I'm going to ask you to leave. Because, you know, I want grown-ups in this department. I don't want children. But, of course, I get it. That's not to say that, you know, we were all, like, you know, very serious. Um, when there was no uh, issues going on and there was nothing, then everyone, you know, you can take this out of everybody, including me. You know, I was not uh, saying to it. So everyone was, and if you couldn't take the piss out of someone or you got upset because someone took it, then we didn't employ those kind of people anyway because you wouldn't fit in with the general ambience of the department. And even that was something we paid attention to. It wasn't just technically are you good, but it was also does your character fit into this team? Because you're going to interact with these people. And if you get easily offended, then you're just not going to have a good time and it's not going to work out because there's going to be that friction. Everyone quite happily takes the mickey out of each other. But in a friendly sort of way, you know, like we don't really uh, make bad jokes and everybody, including me, is not off limits. But when there is a problem, there is no joking, you just get on with it. So how you manage it is the problem here. And quite often employees are caught in trying to figure out what their managers want so that they can behave in a way that doesn't, on the one hand, cheese of their managers, but the, on the other hand, doesn't compromise themselves. And that's a very hard act to follow because you got your internal values and things like that on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're being asked to, like me, for example, go and tell off your team. No, I'm not going to tell off my team. I stuck to my principles. Um, that didn't do me any favors career-wise, but at least, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I maintain my self-respect because I know that if I had yielded, I would feel horrible about myself years on because I did things I shouldn't have done uh, because I gave up my character. And that is when you sell your soul, not when you are working as a call center because on the call center, you should be nice to people or at least you should be pleasant to people. And people may be upset and angry and all the rest of it, but that's their issues. And you are there to pacify them, calm them down and see if you can find a solution. And that is the job. And if you can't do that, then clearly call center isn't for you. 
And quite often you'll find this is lacking in companies because for some reason in society, we have lost ethics. For example, when I went to change my broadband and I, you know, you go online and you say, right, I'm going to change. And it just happens online. I had a phone call from my current pro, well, from my previous provider. I was my current at the time. I hadn't left them yet. Ah, uh, Mr. Corso, we can see you are going to uh, change to another. Yep, yep, okay, I am. And can you uh, tell us why? I said, well, you know, it's cheaper or whatever, and I sort of fancy the change. Well, we can match their, uh, whatever it is, we can match it. So I said to the young lady, I said, look, I'm not being funny, but think about it, I said to her. Imagine you find a job that pays 5,000 pounds more, and you go to your boss and you hand in your resignation, and he says, Mary, her name wasn't Mary, but you know, Mary, um, we'll, we'll match, we'll match it, we'll give you 5,000 pounds more to stay. Wouldn't you think to yourself, so if I was worth 5,000 pounds more, why weren't you paying me this money all this time? So you were taking me for a ride. I said, what does that say to you about the morals of your company? Whereas on the other hand, I said, if you'd rung me up two months ago and you said to me, Errol, you know what? You are such a loyal customer. You've been with us for years. For this money that you're paying, we can give you a better service or we can reduce the amount you pay and keep this and this if you want. I said, I would have been a loyal customer. I wouldn't have bothered looking around and I would have been singing your praises to everybody. But now, I said, goes to show me that really your company is out to grab whatever money they can. There's no, you know, you just see me as some sort of a cash cow. And she didn't know what to say, of course. <laughs> she was just going, yeah, I see what you mean. I said, I'm not having a go at you. I appreciate you just doing a job there. But I said, think about the morals of the company you're working for. And, I, and she said, but they're all the same. And I said, well, in that case, I said, it's just as well that I'm changing. And I will have to keep changing them one time. I said, if they're all the same, then that makes no difference. I said, I'm going from one bad company to another. So that's my choice. So I guess to wrap it up, because I've got to go, but um, morals are certainly values and morals are missing. And that comes back to the personal relationships as well. There's no difference. If your personal values and morals and integrity and principles do not exist, you can't have a fulfilled relationship with another person, let alone as a manager or company, or even as, as a work colleague. Um, management issues, management always uh, blame others, and that comes back to lack of, or, or perhaps to some degree, inability to self-reflect honestly, to look at your own self and say, did I actually get that right? You know, was my decision-making correct? And that comes back to, again, call it meditation if you want or whatever, but self-reflection is what I'm talking about. In your own life, you know, the way I behaved to my spouse or my partner, was it okay? You know, I, I blew up. Well, I shouldn't have blew up. You know, okay, maybe I had a point to make, but surely shouting about it wasn't the right thing to do. Then what is it that I've got to do? Well, I've got to go and apologize for my behavior for a start because I was wrong. Can we do all these things on a day-in, day-out basis? Well, we probably cannot or do not. And that's what creates all the issues. So to some degree, there are very strong parallels between work management and personal relationships. Okay, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Um, you, do you have to go now? 
Uh, I have to go and drop off my daughter to my ex. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Well, thank you for that. There's a few things um, I want to pick out. You've, you've given us so much. Um, yeah, sure. If you want a theory on management and how to change practices, I can give you that too, because that's why I implemented it. I picked up a kind of broken department from my predecessor who was walked out of the office. Um, I knew he was going the night before because they told me and they said they were going to put me in his place and I didn't have a choice. I had to take the job. Um, and it took me about six months to sort it out, well, to bring things under control so that we didn't firefight. Um, and it took me about a year and a half to turn people from to turn people from just one minute, to turn people from uh, being reliant on me, always coming to me with a problem. And these guys, remember, are more qualified than I am, and they're coming asking me what to do. They're technically more qualified. Then I'm thinking this can't be right because what I'm doing is I'm extracting all the information, analyzing it, risk assessing it coming up with a solution and then telling them what to do. And I'm thinking, well, this is crazy. But that is how they have been brought up. I'm the manager. I tell you what to do. You just do as I tell you. Mm. So I had to change that mindset to, you tell me what the solution is and what may go wrong and how you're going to manage it. If you want my authority to go ahead with it. I don't want you to come to me with a problem. I want you to come to me with a solution. And that took some time. And it was only then that they became more independent. And again, that goes back to relationships. Yeah. You can't have an interrelationship with someone else unless you're independent in yourself. If you're not an independent person, you can't have. And, and they were not independent. They don't have the authority or the ability to make decisions. And until they had that, they weren't independent, so they couldn't do it. They were dependent on me. And in a personal relationship, again, it doesn't work in the long run if one party is dependent on the other. It becomes master-slave situation. Okay, well, anyway, thank you. Thank you for your um, contribution. So uh, I'm just going to break a, apart a few of those things. Um, and we'll carry on discussing them. But thanks, Errol. Have a good evening. Um, yeah, I, I think one of the things Errol said is um, that, okay, so, so like just to start, um, I don't have a lot of experience of corporate, corporate organisations. I um, never really fit in very well. Um, and so I don't have great knowledge um, of them, but um, I have um, I have a knowledge of people, so people individually, people in relationships, um, and I think I see some correlations. So um, I think most people in relationships, when relationships don't work, they think they need a new partner. Um, and so many people go out dating and they go, oh, it's them, it's them. Um, and they never learn from the patterns of their relationships. And so they end up having different partners that have the same or different um, problems in the relationship 
because they've never seen what they the like the common element of what they bring to it. And I think companies do that as well. In and what it really is about underneath that is that I don't want to change. It's easier to change someone else. Um, if I change the person, which is George Leonard's um, model of mastery, um, that would relate to the dabbler. So the dabbler loves the new relationships. As soon as it becomes hard, they change and they try, or, or they, they, they do this martial art and then it becomes hard and then they do a different one or they do this hobby and it stops being as much fun. And then so they do this one. So they're always changing, thinking that there's a magic thing that will just work. And I think a lot of people do that in relationships. The whole cultural idea of the one is the idea that there's one person that it's all going to work with and there isn't going to be a problem with. So I think companies have that, that they think, oh, this person's useless. Why do I have these problems with this person? And then they think, okay, all we need is better staff. Um, and they employ people and it seems like it's going to be great. They're going to be great. And then they find the problems. And so in relationships, Dan Weil said, uh, when you marry someone, you marry a set of problems. And I think when you hire someone, you hire a set of problems. Um, and it's just a matter of when, what the problems are and when you're going to see them. It also talked about management and how management was a problem and, and management could often talk a good game but didn't actually know what they were doing. Um, and that really is about how has someone got to that position um, and so really they're being promoted on agendas other than um, the pure efficiency of the business. And I think that's the problem is that you've got agendas of, you've got the agenda of who's leading it, the direction that's going in. You've got the, um, um, the agenda to the shareholders, the agendas are then of the people who, so basically it comes down to middle managers implementing it who then have their own personal agendas, may not believe in the, the set one. Uh, they may be following along because it helps their job, um, but they're implementing it with their own shade. And so they're ticking a box rather than actually wholeheartedly going for it. Um, and then, then there's another problem I think is a social problem that Irul talks about, you know, like when you change utilities run, they make their money on customers who don't change, who don't check how much they're paying. So Sky, um, the all the energy providers, um, it's always, or so people say, you should always change because otherwise they they make their money from the people who don't, <coughs> who don't change. So if you sign up with a new provider, it might be 200 pounds less then you would pay with your existing one on your existing account. Um, and Eero said about the morals and the ethics. I think the problem for that, that a company in that kind of industry is they make more money by the people who like the fact of inertia, they, they don't change. So then you, you've got a problem where you're directly opposed to your customer um, because you want you your profitability is tied to how much you can get for a commodity product that they could get anywhere else 
um, you, and yet you you constantly need, constantly need to be taking new customers from your competitors, and so you have to undercut them, and so you have to offer. Um, so if you undercut it for everyone, there's a problem of um, it just becomes a race to the bottom, and, and the actual product becomes cheaper, um, and so there's less profi- profitability. So um, they get around that by having different tiers. Um, so that's really more of a social problem than an organizational problem. Um, and for the employees, then there's that to work in that knowing like some people are selling stuff that they know isn't the best deal. You know, like you get the call center people of there's a government grant to insulate your home. Um, uh, do you know about this? And, and it's, it's, they're basically telling you some line um, to sell some product. So I think what, what I'm saying is there's you've got people, you've got the direction of the company, and then you've got the alignment of the company. Um, and it's the alignment of the company with the, with the employees, the alignment of the company with the customers um, and with the strategy. And then the other part I'd like to say is that I think I think the hardest part, as I see it, for organisations is aligning people because you can manage the technical aspects by getting the, the people of the right technical expertise and it's relatively easy to line up the strategy and to line up. You can buy that in with the right people. Um and you can you can pay people to do the work that you want, but you can't buy pay for their heart and soul. Um, and when you don't have their heart and soul, you are fighting battles that you can't win, that you can't even see. It's kind of like we recently pulled out of England and or the UK and the Allies in America and that were pulled out of um, Afghanistan. And as I understand it, it's because Afghanistan, you're fighting battles that you can never see because they can hide and like Russia couldn't win, America can't win. And when you look at the might of America, the might of Russia against Afghanistan, you think they just go in and bomb it all and destroy it. And yet, because there's these guerrilla wars and I don't know, I guess they can fight and hide in mountains, um, whatever the secret is that they they can't really be beaten. And I think that's what the conclusion America and the Allies came to, that the cost of continually fighting wasn't worth the effort um, and they just wanted to get out. And I think for a lot of companies, it's that issue because you can't see people's um, heart and souls. You have to pay for their time, but you can't buy their engagement. You can't buy their commitment. Um, And I think um, what we're missing is we have the infrastructure to be educated. We have the infrastructure to train people, which is school, which we we can train people to go out to work and become economically productive. But we don't have the people infrastructure to understand the personal relationships 
I think the same way we have the medical infrastructure that we have, you get vaccinated, you get surgeries, you get um, whatever, but we don't have the infrastructure to know what to do with people. And so we blame people um, and it's a bit like you can't understand the mind from the mind um, because it's the same level. So like if you're trying to think about your mind, how does a mind work? You're thinking from within a mind. Um, and so it's so much more complicated. Sandra, um, I know you've got something. Um, just to touch elaborate. on that point, um, as, as you, it just struck me, when we are um, employing people, we have criteria that we use to assess their suitability. Um, and likewise, in a when we're entering into a relationship, we have some general pointers that we use, you know, the usual stuff. Um, and I think that when it comes to um, in a company, we are looking at the wrong, we're using the wrong criteria because, and it is happening right now because, of course, the pandemic has turned everything upside down, wherein in the past you would find, you, 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 you know, the first thing that you look at, what are your qualifications? You know, the letters and the certificates and all the rest of it. And yeah, they're important because you need to have the skills necessary in, in that regard, if it's, especially if it's a technical job. But now what everybody is looking for are the things that um, are intangible, the soft skills, you know, ability to lead, ability to work in a, as part of a team, ability to um, comprehend whatever, you know, various things, et cetera, et cetera. And how do you develop a set of um, processes that allows for um, those those very skills to be identified because you have to one articulate how you what you what it is that you're looking for secondly you have to train the person who's going to do that assessment to be able to use um, certain tools to arrive at whether or not that, that person um, embodies those skills because those are the skills that that now make the difference especially in certain jobs wherein, you know, it, artificial intelligence, robotics can do certain repetitive tasks. What is happening is the human element. The human element is coming into, the, you know, into the fore. And I suppose likewise with a relationship is we are entering into relationships blindly in a sense because the very same things that we sometimes think that we, um, we are looking for we don't have the tools to identify them. They, they literally have to hit us in the face as we go along and we say it. And then it's like, ah, oh, yes, I feel like I'm home now, you know, because, yeah, I found this is what I was looking for. But before that, what questions do you ask? What do you look for, etc.? And then again, compounded uh, um, with that is, especially if you're somebody who's worked uh, in a competitive environment, you develop certain um, characteristics that you take with you outside of the work environment into 
all your other relationships and how you interact with people because no matter what we say the work environment is where we spend a lot of time and so behaviors do um you know infiltrate into our, into our, um into the way we 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 do and see things uh, to some degree and so i i'm i'm reaching more and more to the conclusion that we strive for certain things but we are not very good at articulating the scope the you know describing the depth and the nuances of these things that we are seeking and so if we can't identify it even if it's staring us in the face it sometimes has to drop on our heads <laughs> for us to, to know that we are there and maybe sometimes we actually have it and don't even recognize it you know you you know you say oh my goodness i did let that one go and he actually was a good person <laughs> you know but he's gone <laughs> because we didn't recognize it um, so i think we need training yeah um, so when, when I said about the infrastructure, what I really mean is that we have an infrastructure for literacy, we have an infrastructure for numeracy, um, but we don't have for emotional intelligence, we don't have for the ability to relate. Um, and, you know, there's, there's, there's certain political things. So like uh, PSHE, they teach um, sex education, consent and, and all of that kind of thing and, and sexual health and stuff. But what they haven't is that's kind of isolated and it's isolated in a knee-jerk reaction to a politics. But what they haven't given is the emotional intelligence in which that would embed. Um, and so it's, it's random. It's, it's just like doesn't fit in anywhere. Um, and I mean, so teach, like there was no point, like I wasted, when I was at school, I went, I did one music lesson where the um, teacher makes you do the recording. And I said, you don't really want to do this. And I sat in a corner copying out composers books. Um, so that was two years wasted until I, um, you could drop it. Um, I was in art. My art teacher told me my art was worth it in um, tw 30 years of teaching. Yeah, 30, 20, or 20 years of teaching. Um, I think the only thing I did in art was get my nose broken. Um, and so they're like, people are in these subjects, um, like woodwork, whatever. If you're not interested in that, um, the, the learning about the 1066 or the, the geography, I, I hated geography um, and dropped it as soon as I could. Um, wouldn't it be more impactful to know about relationships, to know about yourself, to, to know, to have some emotional literacy? Um, because I think what's happening in a lot of places, you've got these extremely bright technical experts, um, financial computing, um, uh, all kinds of fields, medical, um, who can't relate to people. Like the, the, the biggest, um, I remember reading, I don't know how true it is, but the biggest um, 
okay, so like most of us couldn't judge the quality of a doctor. So we judge it from their bedside manner, from how well they explain, but that doesn't have any relation to how good they are surgically. Um, and so you get people who are brilliant technically, but they can't get along. I, I, I remember uh, um, I had a group uh, where we met up and this um, bloke said that he, he never really fitted in at work, never really got on, um, that he hadn't been invited to, really like everyone else had been invited to someone's wedding and he was the only person in the office that hadn't. And he said the only reason they kept him around was because he was brilliant at computer programming and he could do what no one else could. Um, and like it, it was clearly a, he felt there was something wrong with him because he couldn't get along with people. But it was, it was, and I think a lot of that is because people are trained to be brilliant and to, they have their pride in their brilliance. Um, so like um, in examples, Errol gave, where the CEO uses his force to get what he wants. Um, and there's so much of, of those in human dynamics that affects people and the, and the organisational efficiency because someone in charge has never learned to control their emotions and can't separate their emotions from um, like the right strategy or the right approach. I have kind of a, a question on that front, just because like you, what were you saying about you've got uh, subjects that kind of um, like it, it's different for for every person. But before you can pick your options, you kind of force subjects that just you, you don't connect with. They don't mean anything to you. Because I always kind of thought. Um, you know, like when you have, uh, P I can't remember what it's called, like PHSE uh, at school, B because you're you're in a situation where you've got like an abundance of people your own age, the sort of at similar stages, it's not kind of important to you to pay attention to it at the time. So I guess it would kind of go wasted on a lot of people because they don't think they need to worry about it because it's such a plentiful resource at school because they're that age. Because I, I noticed it wasn't really until I finished school and you didn't have all these, you know, when you start working, everybody, like generally everybody's a lot older than you because you come into a company and everyone's been there for years. Like you have to start paying attention a lot more to how you relate to people. So I, I'm kind of curious as to, I don't know what what your um, what your suggestion would be on how how you would bring about that kind of I don't know, just like general awareness that people would have of emotional maturity or, or whatever you'd call it because I, I don't know at what point you would be able to kind of get people to become aware of it if that makes sense yeah um okay so the problem is in i think the problem is that um it's a social problem so whenever you look at school school problems um and so i did because if you look at, so I remember when I was studying psychology, there was um, there was a, a, a study that was quite new then. So it was about two thousand and two, and it was um, I can't remember their name, but basically they said that all 
they said there was an underclass. Um, and the underclass was one of intelligence. Um, and they basically said people of a lower intelligence cause all the social problems or the crime problems, um, social problems, crime problems, health problems. Um, and I remember, and it was like, so this was in, in the study of intelligence. Um, and so intelligence is, is fairly, when you look at research, it's fairly clear that um, about 75% of it is genetic. Um, but there's this war going on that people won't um, accept that because of what's been done in the past. So like in America, um, in early 20th century, there was euthanasia and people were sterilized based on like idiot, moron, imbecile, a cretin were IQ classifications. Um, and so much was done because of that. Um, and so uh, someone on Bernstein, I think it was, um, and so they they came out with this, and I was like, "That's shocking! It's terrible." Um, but actually, when you, you working in a in a school and looking at how much was spent, um, it was a lot of the cost of running the school goes to a few um, like a few students, and it's often a few families. Um, who are also heavily involved with um, social care. So they, um, who are also involved, like have health issues, who are also are linked with crime issues. Right. Um, where was I? I can't remember where, where I started with that. So um, how did I get to that? So we're talking about how do you teach um, emotional? Okay. So some of it, yes. Yeah, so okay. So, so the problems, the problems of the school um, and the school is politically, right. So school and health, um, all of these kind of things are political footballs. So they change not on what works, but on the ideology of whoever's in government at that time. Right. But if you really look at the problem, um, the problems of a school, uh, and a school is measured like by Ofsted, by exam results. And a lot of that is to do with catchment. And um, so this is why, like, as schools have moved to academies, they try and um, they try and pick who they who they can have. And they try and exclude like SEN students because it will lower them. They'll have to pay more money. So the, the problems of a school are really social problems because children have come in and by the age of five, by the, definitely by high school, they've learned not, never to trust, never to, like Iruud said, never to admit that they've done something wrong because at home they get shouted at because of that. Um, so they won't trust anyone. Um, even when it's quite blatant, they'll lie through their teeth that they haven't done it. But more, it's more than that. They won't even trust because their expectation is that, you're not going to get anything you want like, without fighting for it. You're not, um, you're not so like they don't necessarily come from the most loving families, the, the families that you can trust, the families that they know someone's there for them. They might not be getting fed at night. Um, sometimes school is the only place where they'll get food. Um, so there's all of those problems. We're in the social context where you learn from home, you learn from school. I think in all organisations, you get 
what you reward. And where schools reward um, education, so like particularly the, the changes that Gove made were about you make everything academic. Um, there's no creativity. Like the creative subjects are, they have to have an academic theory. It's more fit, like food and nutrition is more about theory than about cooking. Um, technical subjects had moved towards that. So you get what, we, what you reward. You like it, it, um, I think for a lot of comp big companies, um, they reward short-term decisions because that's where the CEO and the board get their big bonuses. Um, and so there isn't long-term decisions made for the long-term health. Right. So, and it's the same in schools. Um, but to, to kind of go back to, uh, um, to actually more directly answer your question, um, it, it was how, how, do you, how would you teach emotional literacy? Yeah, I, I guess it's, I, I don't know if that's the right question, but it's like, I guess, how, how, how do you sort of go about implementing, like, first of all, becoming aware of it yourself, like developing that as a skill, but also kind of encouraging people to, to do that around you, if that makes sense. Because yeah. I, I don't think it's like something you can teach, if that makes sense. It's something you have to nurture, if that. Yeah, I don't. I don't think you do it in a school environment. If that makes sense, like. Um, yeah, um, to some degree, it can, um, because it's about. So really, it, like, if you're going to deal with behaviour in a school, like punishment doesn't work. Um, it. it it is emotional. The only way that you can get, okay. If you punish, like if you punish those kind of kids, they just switch off. Um, they, um, you can't punish them more than they've already had. Um, the way that you can get through is through connection. If you build a relationship and you, the only time you can build a relationship is when they're in need, when they're down, when they're, they've done something or they're um, like, they have to listen to you. They won't need your help. And if you then give them like the branch, that's when there's a connection and that's when they'll trust you. So I think for, for people, it's really those basic things. It's trust. It's the things that you would look at from a good parent. You, you learn trust. You learn love from someone who gives it to you. Um, so how would people learn it for themselves? It's about... I think it's digging. You have to mine. So if it's a bit like gold that you have to mine, is that you have to look at, um, this is why I think everything comes down to your relationship to truth. Um, because if you look at why did this happen? Why did this really happen? And the knee-jerk reaction is, is therefore this or, or anything other than me. And um, so you have to have the um, ability to be honest enough to look and have self-reflection uh, because in relationships it's easy to blame someone else. Um, but when you blame someone else, you don't learn anything that makes you any better in future relationships. So it has to be, um, what did I do? What part of this can I control? Um, so it starts with that. Um, and so what happens then is if you're really work on the truth and someone else working, which will often happen is someone will work on some other currencies, someone will work on a different level. 
like someone will talk about, oh, it's this, 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 you should change, you should change on a, on a different level. Does that make sense? Um, it's whoever's going to hold to that. Because if, if you change and you talk on their level, then um, they've controlled the frame. But if you only talk on the truth, um, and this is will if people aren't open to it, it will really frustrate them. And so it's it's how people will either they either get to your level and relate to you, or they'll go away. Um, because if you talk on the truth, and when someone's on there, it unpicks the problem, and then they have to either relate truthfully. Or they have to, or they'll move away because they just don't want to. Um, so it's about this is what's happening, um, and that gives an invitation. But it has to be why someone's on there is because they don't trust that it's safe for them to talk on a level of truth. Either they don't believe that they're they're a good person and they're scared of being found out, or they um, don't want to reveal their real motivation. It, it's really knowing, not accepting the superficial or the bullshit um, answers that you would give yourself, but going, why why is that really? Why is that really? Until something that holds up that can't be disproven um and you kind of have to, uh, for me i think you have to separate yourself from the issue um so that's something that comes naturally to me and i think that's why i come across as seeming detached and uh because i don't when i look at something i don't really have an emotional attachment i don't have I, this is what i want I think what I want is more to understand. And because I want more to understand, I don't, um, um, I'm willing to let go of uh, the, the story in if it makes me better, because I, I would rather be better for next time. Um, so, yeah, so it's really about understanding the structure of how you run, like, how you operate um, and what the story, the narrative is that you're operating on. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. Um, and then it's the more that you are in that, the more you relate honestly to people, the more that that can develop and the more that you'll see it. Um, I also think, so I think Ken Wilber talks about, um, he talks about um, waking up, which is states of consciousness. And that's what you get from meditation, contemplation. Um, but he also talks about why, like great meditation, like spiritual gurus, then are corrupted and corrupt their cults. Um, and so he talks about growing up. So structures of consciousness. So the structure is what I would say is the operating system. Whereas the the state is is like when you meditate enough, you can get to a state where you become separate from who you are. But the structure is how you run um, when you're under stress, how you run, how you operate in everyday life. 
so like your default kind of uh, yeah so um the the state is like a peak state so um say like buddha uh, did his 40 or whatever however long um or jesus or any of them um and they see something in meditation that changes them forever but it doesn't necessarily change how they operate and he's saying it's the structure the beliefs the assumptions that you operate on which which gives you the stable operating yeah i would, I would call it the operating level but on the opinion all of that is that fundamental fair of discovery and to me a part of that process is to have the ability to hold that in to a manageable uh, into a manageable corner shall we say the so fear I, fear yeah I manage the fear yeah to manage the fear yeah. Um, yeah. yeah because if you don't you can't then you will not honestly be able to you, you can't honestly look at self um and separate um the various elements that you're you know talking about because um going into that delving into all of those aspects of self is a journey into the unknown in some respects um in the sense that you are unraveling or decoupling certain elements that you as an uninitiated person would think of as a an, an entity unto itself or a unit unto itself then you realize that it's several layers and within those layers you may find elements um of self that are not very attractive that are not things that you want to to face to contemplate there might be weaknesses they may be you know whatever it is and um it's a, a, a fight of wills maybe so to speak to force yourself to actually face <laughs> i suppose it's like when they say face your demons you literally have to face it and um stand firm and understand why it's there why it's a part of you what it does to you or for you or against you whichever it may be and how to control that element um and it may be uh of 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 significance it may be pertinent just to your sense of self and sense of well-being and sense of who you are or it may impact on how you actually see the world and your perception of um people that you have relationships with and um how do you find a way to manage those aspects without actually destroying your sense of identity of who you are or making you feel that you are destroying yourself if you, if you know what i mean because <laughs> you're pulling yourself apart mm. um i think you have to destroy yourself you have to destroy i think you have to break the model i think we're all contained like um there's like plateaus and to get to get to the next level you have to break the model that you have so um i think 
you talked about that's the, a fair the, that's a fair rob because you think that if you break the mold you may not be able to put it back that is the yeah. fair that you have mm-hmm. to conquer mm-hmm. um and i'm thinking okay reinventing yourself is is the word i was trying to get to which is i think what you're alluding to but um, the process is dangerous for something yeah yeah so we create a, a structure like this is the map and the territory and i think fundamentally um what you, what we're really talking about here is we're a biological organism in a social context. So if you look at autism and ADHD and all of these fundamental things, um, we talk about them as being disorders. We talk about them as being conditions, diseases, um, but they're not. They're a way of being. They're only a problem within a social context, which we try and fit people in. So if you look at mental health, and if you look at like levels now of anxiety, of of suicide, of depression, of burnout, all of these things that people are struggling with, um, and everyone's talking about mental health and mental health crisis and all of this, it's not a mental health crisis because it's not really mental health. It's, it's, mental health within a social context Um, and what's happening is i think the problems in our society in terms of relationships in terms of i think we're reaching the end of the the way that our government will work um, i think we're we're reaching the limit of our model and we have to break the model um, before we like that's how we're going to solve climate problem um, mental health problems, relationship problems, is because the model that we're operating within doesn't fit our um, social context. Because if you if you look at mental health, what that really is is about well being. And when you look at well being, it's like putting a plant in the wrong type of soil in a darkened room um, without any water. And then saying, you, you look at the look at the health of the, look at plant health. Um, it's really nothing to do with mental health per se. It's to do with the context in which we're asking a bi- biological organism to function. So, um, and 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 to talk about your point about people being scared of. Um, which really is that people just don't want to look at themselves. And the reason that they don't want to look at themselves is because rather than feeling like I'm a plant that just emerges and if I have the right um, light, soil, temperature, uh, oxygen, uh, carbon dioxide, um, I'm going to function, we think I'm a bad person because there's this kind of religious connotation, which even if we're not religious and we don't grow up in a religious culture um it's embedded in the social context in everything that we see in all the cultural references so uh dr mario martinez talked about the three core wounds which are shame abandonment and betrayal and like he said we we'll we all have one of those as our core wound um and that is going to affect in our, how in our relationship dynamics. But it also means that we don't 
we don't want to look or reveal ourselves to other people because um like what the, sh the shame does is shuts you up because you just don't talk about it and so it's a taboo subject so um and this really comes down to joseph campbell talked about um what our society problems are really is that our mythology and our technology are mismatched so he said like if you look at and so joseph campbell read everything basically every kind of literature he did all these studies of all different religions he's got a book of like four volumes of um different religions and he, he was very into native americans and so he would look at the stories um and those stories reflect the operating system like and it was like the justification for eating meat was that they, there was a contract between man and, and animal um and so so it wasn't in the way that we we kill we slaughter cattle and, and we keep them like penned up in um in artificial and pumping full of hormones and all this kind of stuff um and uh yeah so so there there was a real sacred contract um and it was because their mythology and the technology of the time were in sync whereas what's happened is our mythology is from 2000 years ago so christianity um buddhism um hinduism um uh islam all of those mythologies are from thousands of years ago um and now we've got this so we've got this science that completely disproves this mythology um and and but we're not allowed to kind of challenge that because this, these are people's sacred beliefs and so that like there's a protective net around religion um and so religion doesn't like if you look at it in our modern world it doesn't really make sense um and so you have to believe that, like there's this clashing belief um and so what he was saying is that we need to have a mythology which is a, a stories that guide us that we operate from and teach us that makes sense with the science of the day but as a society we are also um guided by or governed by or influenced by what i call the law of averages if you fit in with the average you're fine um you know when you're an outlier then you become either you know as you're saying you know autism and etc etc you become um an outlier so therefore you are not part of the herd you need to be treated differently so labels are attached to you remember there was a time when people like me would have been burnt at the stake you know because i'm left-handed <laughs> so <laughs> i wouldn't be here i'd be gone i'm a witch um so yeah it's those 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 kinds of things and we are evolving uh behind the technology and i think also another layer is that um yeah the technology and we're trying to keep up with the technology but the emotional part is even slower still i think because we we are not giving 
a critical mass of the population, of any population, the wherewithal to even understand some of the basic drivers that make them who they are and why they do what they do. And until we have that critical mass who are capable of having the conversations like what we are doing, um, without um, judgment, being judgmental, putting in social layers like religion, the various bits and, and, and traditional um, thing and cultural traditions, taboos that govern and restrict and confine how you behave and how you ought to behave and what you can and can't do. Uh, so it is, I think it's a, it's a, it's a fight of different components. And if you are not equipped or aware of how they influence you and how you can strip away those layers to actually understand what you stand for, you're just getting swept along with the tide. You, and adds to your frustration because you're trying to make decisions and you're being bounced <laughs> like in an ocean. You're just going blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like when your parents come at you, oh, you need to do this and you need to do that. And then auntie and uncle come and whatever, say something. And then your friends say something totally different because they're all at the rebellious stage and you're caught in the middle. No, where do you go? <laughs> um, because you don't have the emotional strength to say, at my core, this is what I believe, and I'm going to stand firm for this. Mm. Um, yeah, I, um, I think it's a bit like the Matrix. Um, and when you look at all social problems from organi within organisations, governments, education, any, any of those problems, what you're really dealing with is hidden motives. Um, because, um, so... Um, in, when you talk about mental health, so there's a psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Thomas Sass, who said that um, there is no mental, there is no mental illness. He said people have always been like that, but the problem is that mental illness is, by its nature, a threat to the state um, because they're operating from a different um, set of frame to the establishment, so they're naturally a threat, so it becomes classified, and he says it, it was a way. And when you look at um, Nazi Germany and you look at the Soviet Union, um, one of the ways that you get rid of dissidents or your, uh, or your um, um, political threats is by declaring them insane. Um, you either kill, like criminal or insane. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I think um, it's the hidden motives um, that we don't see, and we don't challenge the hidden motives. And I think that, like the emperor's new clothes, I, I think of that a lot. We don't challenge it because there's this inherent shame that there's something wrong with us, um, and everyone will see it. And and I think when you look at like in school, we're, we're bred for that. We're bred like that. Um, like I've heard that the school, the idea of the school was set up in rows to produce people um, like from these feral um, people who live on the farms and rural who, who just run in wild to um, 
be um, citizens that could sit in a factory um, in rows, listen to what they were told to do and do as they're told without thinking. I feel like it's all like kind of like pushing and pulling you out of alignment every which way. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, sort of be the woods for the trees. Yeah, and I think because everyone in, like Sandra was saying, everyone wants you to be something other than you are. Um, And because you, you, this is the core problem in a relationship is when you hit conflict, your partner wants you to be someone that makes their dream come true. And you want your partner to be something that makes your dream come true. And so none of us really want to change what, what this is why like the dream is we win the lottery because what that means is I don't have to change but my circumstances change because of luck we want magic pills because I don't want to like if I've got a problem with my health I don't want to change my diet my um the amount of exercise and all of this stuff I want a magic pill that's going to make it better and um, what we want in our families you know like parents grow up and they've got um, goals for their for their children, um, and so they guide their the child. You should be a lawyer. You should be a doctor. You should be this. You should be that. Um, you shouldn't marry this person. You shouldn't. Um, and when you look, think of people like children who are homosexual, um, and like the it, it directly threatens the parents because they're not going to have grandchildren or. or Traditionally, they won't. Um, and or you're not marrying someone from a certain class or caste or um, from a different religion. Um, so there's, there is so much pressure on all of us to fit in with what the people around us. Um, and it's not that they're necessarily wanting people don't recognize that we just we just from our the map that we're working from that would be best for them um they're going to be and as a parent you, you also see like your child making these mistakes and you think um like and there's an arrogance you know like from from children are like oh yeah i know better um and you go no you don't but you have to make your own mistakes um so Yes, yes. So there's that. Um, we can only see what we think is best for other people. And then there's, um, yeah, it takes a lot of trust to let go of that and let someone find their own way. And that trust depends on your experiences um, and your map of the world of how what the consequences are. But your map of the world is also changing, and but some people refuse to let it change. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> fight the change. That, that is the exact problem. So like Jake, when you asked, it's really about, you have to realise that the map is not the territory and your, it's your map that needs updating. Um, but so many people don't want to. Um, Hence, we go back to fair because it's fair. <laughs> fair. They go back. We go back to fair. The whole issue of fair. What um, fair and unfair being the world being fair? 
No, no. F-E-A-R, because they don't want to change. They don't want to change. It's out of fear. Oh, fear. oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Accept, accept, accept that this is fluid. Um, and so they hold on. And of course, if there are two people in a relationship and one doesn't want to change and one is flying the coop and all of a sudden being very independent and finding themselves, I mean... Yeah, that's when difficulties start. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I, I do I do think that there are um the longer people are living, it's the more likely that that will happen at some stage wherein um people find um their groove, whichever it may be, either evolution or stagnation. And yeah. that's part of the conflict where you talk about the pulling and the pulling apart of couples and, and stuff. You can see that. Um, or somebody becomes very religious and the other one becomes less so. And it's um, it's traumatic, but it's also traumatic for the children as well. Mm. And and so you, you get um, what is... What begins as something between two people then becomes a family situation once again, and it becomes a whole different set of dynamics that that's that that's playing out. And uh, I, I don't know how yeah. we don't have the wherewithal sometimes to actually even be able to recognize that that's what's happening. That that's part of what I fear that um, you can look on other people you know, external relationships, nothing to do with you. And you can pinpoint certain things and you're looking at it maybe because it's a dispassionate view. You know that something is wrong or something is not. But it's very hard for you to do the same with your own relationship sometimes. And and, and also with, with yourself, you can look at someone else, but you can't look at yourself. Exactly, exactly. I digress for a minute. Please indulge me, folks. But I've just got, I'm um, on this dating app and this gentleman <laughs> has just written a note to me. I've never had this one before, but. <laughs> are, are you okay while we're still recording with this? Yes, fine. It's fine. It's fine. I always see the funny side of things. I've got a brilliant sense of humor and I can't believe there's a woman out there four years older than me that I could be your toy boy. No, what can I say to that? <laughs> Um, that's that's what he said I can't believe there's a woman four years old that I could be your toy boy yeah Um, ask him what his heart condition is (laughs) health of his very good I will do exactly that (laughs) so when was your recent um, before I discuss any more I'd just like to uh, make sure like I don't want to give you a heart attack and just want to check your general health condition Oh God! <laughs> I mean, I didn't know that I was looking for a toy boy. Oh my goodness gracious! Four years older than this man. This man is right. Oh, can he believe it? And he says it in four different messages, and he keeps telling me that I'm an old, older woman than him. And he looks ancient. This is the bad part about it. I look like I'm forty, and he looks like he's about eighty. 
Well, well I mean, well, you could say that. <laughs> she wanted to be blunt. Brilliant. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> that's that's today's humour. <laughs> Oh, gosh. Okay, well, thank you for that. Um, okay, before we go, is any other work related or related to anything that we've said tonight? Any comments, questions, insights? I just want to say this was a really brilliant talk. Like, I'm oh. going away with a lot of awareness and learned a lot. So that's good. Oh, good. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Okay. All right. Well, everyone, have a have a good week, um, and hope to see you next week. Nice Thank to you. see you, Nicole. Thank Thanks you. Adios. Thanks. Thank you, Rob. Bye, everybody. Good night. Bye.